Happy Father's Day. It's my first. <laughs> and, it, and it gives new meaning to Mark 15, 16 to 32. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called the, together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in, in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. World War II was a huge world war. We might still have some people here who served in World War II. Anybody still here? Yeah. yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Yay. Ed and Ann, at least, and maybe others. You know, it was a huge conflict that was world-changing. It was a conflict between two different groups of nations, two different ideologies. For us, it really felt like a, a battle between good and evil, between the Allies and the Axis powers. Who would prevail? The fascist regime of Adolf Hitler or the democracies of the West? The war was determined by a clash of powerful armies. And the Allies, with the stronger armies who had more power, defeated the Nazi regime in the end. It was a great victory for the West. As we've been walking through the book of Mark, we've been observing the increasing hostility of the Jews and the Romans towards Jesus. In our passage today, as Mark describes for us the crucifixion of Jesus, it all comes together. It all comes to a head. This is not just the crucifixion of an irritating rabbi who stirred up problems in Israel. 
in those days. It really is a clash between two different kingdoms, two different ideologies. And this battle is not determined by who's the most powerful. This battle is determined in a very different way. And because the way these two kingdoms function is radically different. As we look at these two kingdoms today, as we see them all come to a head in the crucifixion, we need to ask ourselves, which kingdom are we most part of? We may be followers of Jesus. We may trust him. We may walk with him. But it's still very possible to live our lives primarily as citizens of the kingdom of man rather than the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, as we come together today as your people, as people who love you, who want to follow you, we, we know we don't always follow you well. <laughs> and too often we're influenced by the world around us. Today, as we look at what you accomplished for us, as, at what you did as you went to the cross and what you faced in your crucifixion, may your spirit open our minds and our hearts to catch a fresh vision of what it means to live as citizens of your kingdom first and foremost, so that we might be yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this dramatic story of the crucifixion, it's very, very powerful. And we think about the crucifixion and what it accomplished for us. And we'll focus more on that next week. But what's very interesting to me is in this whole section of the crucifixion, Mark only uses in the Greek really two words to describe the crucifixion. Three words in English, verse 24, and they crucified him, if, and so they crucified him. And that's it. That's all they say. And we know crucifixion was a very dramatic and amazing and powerful and difficult, torturous thing. And yet that's all he says about the crucifixion itself. Interesting to me that he uses basically the, the writer here, Mark, uses 17 verses with many, many words to describe the whole mocking and rejection of Jesus surrounding the crucifixion. That's very interesting to me. Why is that? Why was that so important to Mark? And why do we need to pay some attention to that, to the mocking, to the rejection that goes on surrounding the cross? Well, I think there may be several reasons. One may be that for Mark, it's really our heart attitude towards Jesus that's most important, that he wants us to look at. What is our attitude, our hearts towards him and I think also what Mark is doing in our passage today is he's bringing the two kingdoms together, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. And he's highlighting it through these mockings and this rejection so we can more clearly see the difference and be challenged as to which kingdom we are living in. So as he begins, the first rejection we see is the rejection of the Roman soldiers themselves. And in this rejection of the Roman soldiers, it's interesting to look at what was happening. It says they took him away to the palace, that's the praetorium, 
and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Now, cohort was typically 600 soldiers. Uh, There may have been a little smaller dispatch that was there in Jerusalem, but they needed a pretty big Roman force to keep the peace because these were unruly Jews. So it was quite a big crowd, and they're all called together simply to mock Jesus. Why do they get into this so much? Why are they doing this? Well, remember the soldiers, these Roman soldiers, hated being in Judea. I mean, think about it. It's like being sent to the very outer reaches of nowhere. The Roman soldiers wanted to be in Rome or Philippi or Corinth where the action was happening, but to be sent to this dry desert outpost at the very edges of the Roman Empire was very displeasing to the Roman soldiers. But secondly, the Jews were very unruly. They were stubborn. They were difficult to oversee. There were terrorists that were working behind the scenes to try to drive out the Romans. It was a difficult place to be a soldier. It was a seemingly God-forsaken outpost at the edge of the Roman Empire. So at this point, they get this guy who's claimed to be king of the Jews, and they're going to torture him and crucify him. It's an opportunity for them to take out all their anger on the Jews, on this one man. I think that's why they gather together and they mock him. And they treat him horribly. And remember that he's already been scourged and whipped. Verse 15. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. If you've seen the movie The Passion, you know what a torturous, awful thing it was to get whipped, to get beaten, to be scourged as Jesus was. So he'd already been through that. And now he has to face the mocking and the wrath of the Roman soldiers. So they gather around him and they torture him. They dress him as a king. They take a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And it says they took a staff and kept beating him on that crown of thorns on his head. They mock him as a king. Oh, what a wonderful king. And they mockingly bow down to him. Hail, king of the Jews. They kept beating him, his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. It's interesting to think about the fact that Jesus is essentially a victim of racism here. The Romans are beating this dark-skinned Jew because he's a Jew. I don't think it was personal. I don't think they cared who Jesus was, but they're mad at the Jews and they're taking it out on him. He's a victim of racism. He's being tortured and executed in the worst way because of who he is. You get this picture here of this All the Roman soldiers gathered around him. And you think about this. What a bunch of bullies, right? But don't bullies... Who do bullies pick on? The weaklings. The ones they can dominate. The ones they can exert their power over. And Jesus is not fighting back. And he is essentially a weakling in their power. So they torture him. But remember, Jesus predicted this exact thing to happen, right? Back in chapter 10 of Mark, verse 33. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, he tells his disciples, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him 
and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. None of this is a surprise to Jesus. He knew exactly what he was doing. He's in control, and yet he totally, completely submits to the process. So we see the rejection of the Romans of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. But there was also the rejection of the crowds, verse 29 and 30. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him. The word is blaspheming him. They were reviling him. They were thinking of all the insults they could come up with. They were abusing him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So not only are the Romans abusing Jesus, but the passers-by. These are probably people that had come from all over the world for the Passover feast to celebrate it with the Jews. This was a huge event, and they see this crucifixion. Let's go see what's happening. And they walk by, and they mock him. Over and over, it says, in the, in the Greek, it means they kept doing this over and over and walking by and more and more people, mocking his powerlessness, mocking his words. Oh, yeah, you said you're going to rebuild the temple. Yeah, right. Huh. Look at you now. Look at you now. Then we see the rejection of the Jewish leaders again. <laughs> We've seen it all the way through, but again, they're there. As Jesus is crucified, verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so we may see and believe. They mock the fact that Jesus saved others. Now, think about this for a minute. These are the leaders of the Jewish people, and they're looking at Jesus on the cross and they know he saved people. They know he healed people. He cast demons out of people. He forgave their sins. They know all that. He saved others. And yet, rather than worshiping him for who he is, they're mocking him. He's powerless to save himself. <laughs> he thinks he's so great. Yeah, he did all that great stuff for other people, but he can't do a thing for himself. Why don't you come down from the cross so we may see and believe, they say. <laughs> now, wait a minute. These Jewish leaders had seen him heal people. They had seen the blind restored to sight. They had seen demons cast out. And they said, well, yeah, but if you came down from the cross, maybe we would see and believe that. Do you think they would have believed? No. Because their hearts are hard. They, they don't want to believe. No matter what, they'd seen plenty of evidence that he is the Messiah, the King, God himself. And yet, they refuse to believe. And then we see at the end the rejection of those crucified with him who are essentially terrorists. That's who they are. That the Greek word lestes could mean robbers. Most translations say robbers, but probably they were actually terrorists that were fighting against the Romans. They were working to undermine the Roman occupation. 
They were trying to kill Romans wherever they could. These two had been caught and they were being crucified with Jesus. But notice, it says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. These criminals are mocking Jesus as well as the others. Now, we know later one repents. That's in one of the other Gospels. But here, Mark wants to make very clear that the entire world is arrayed against Jesus. Do you see how he's laid it out? The Romans, the passers-by from all over the world, the Jewish leaders, and even the criminal element there are all mocking and rejecting Jesus. They're mocking Jesus for his impotence, for his powerlessness, his weakness. And so they're abusing him. He's the very creator of the universe who breathed life into every one of us. And yet they're mocking him as powerless. They're bullying him at his weakest. And I think we have to ask ourselves, if we had been there, would we have done any different? In a few moments, we'll sing... Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. If we honestly look at our own hearts, we have to realize we mock Jesus too. We struggle with him. Why are you so weak, Jesus? Why don't you fix the things I want you to fix in my life? Why don't you answer my prayers the way I want you to? Why are you the kind of God who is so humble and patient that you don't do what I want you to do? Why do you show yourself to be this kind of God? Why don't you deal with ISIS? Why don't you fix the evil in the world? Why are you the kind of God you are? We're really not any different. (laughs) Because we're part of the world. You see, this is really a clash of two kingdoms. This is the kingdom of the world, and this is the kingdom of of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and the clash comes together. And unlike World War II, where you have a battle between powers, you see Jesus exerting something very different. The way he fights is very different. The way he lives out his kingdom is very different. How is Mark portraying the contrast between these two? Let me just highlight some things. What is the kingdom of this world like? What what does it value? What are its tactics? Well, first, it values power. This world will always value power, right? It's those who have strength, who are in control, who are most exalted in our culture, in our world. The kingdom of this world always exalts Power. Therefore, this world will always despise weakness. It will despise those who can be dominated. Whoever has the power is the most important, is the most valued, and Jesus is completely powerless here. Think about the Arab Spring that's happened all over the Arab world since 2011, and you think about our support of overthrowing these terrible Arab rulers and what's happened in almost every country. Someone else has come to power who's not any better. Of course, that's the way the world works. It's just power and power corrupts, but the world seeks power. And so you replace one power with another power. What have you done? It's really not an improvement. 
We think if we just overthrow President Assad in Syria, then we could fix that whole situation. You really think so? Who would fill the vacuum? Who would come in? Who would take control? Would it be better? In our election this year, it seems to me that many of us have fallen into this attitude of, well, who has the most power to do us good? That, isn't that the way the world looks at it? I'm afraid too many of us Christians have fallen into that. We're, we've kind of lost a vision for integrity and character and what's really important. And instead, we just want the most powerful one that's going to do us the most good in office. That's the kingdom of this world looking for some power to get done what we think should get done. And we think, well, yeah, but we want them to do good things, right? But that's foolish because the world is always the same. It always looks to power. Another value of this world we see in this passage besides power is status and position. The kingdom of this world values status, those who have a position above others. So those who are lowly or disenfranchised are despised. And, of course, Jesus is portraying himself here as a nobody. So they feel free to torture him. He has no status here, no position. So those in a place of position or status look down on those who don't have position or celebrity status. And the world worships those who do. Who gets portrayed in our media and who do we follow all the time? It's these celebrities, it's, it's athletes, it's movie stars, actors, it's the wealthy. We're somehow enamored by that. Our world is consumed by status, by position. It's one of the values of this world. And then a third one, we could go on, but you see that in this passage as well, is the value of self, self protection, self-preservation. You see, in our world, putting self first is expected, right? Verse 24, they're crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. The value of this world is you take what you can. He gets mocked, verse 30 and 31, because he saved others. He cannot save himself. Come down from the cross and save yourself. Value of this world is always self. It's take care of yourself first. Putting self first is expected. Taking care of self is above all else. The media knows this, and so do the ad campaigns, right? Have it your way. Just do it. You deserve a break today. I'm loving it. I mean, you could go on with all the jingles that we hear. Uh, it's all about me. It's all about us because that's the nature of the world. So the values of the world are focused on these things, power, status, and self. And so what are their tactics for carrying this out? Well, we see in this passage, I want to highlight just two, intimidation and violence. The world uses intimidation and violence to get what it wants. Here you see the Romans and all the others using mocking, using intimidation to get its way to maintain a sense of power to this powerless man on a cross. This is a tactic of the world on all levels, right? From nations, between nations, where we try to intimidate one another to get our way. And, 
you know, threats of boycotts or some kind of thing so that we can control one another to get what we want. But it occurs not just on a national level, but all the way down to corporations and all the way down to our personal level and our marriages. Don't we use intimidation to try to get what we want and threats? If I can cause you to cower in fear, I'll have control over you. If I can just flex my muscles so you'll be afraid somehow, I'll get my way. And if that doesn't work, then the world relies on violence. First, verbal violence, you see it here with the mocking. But then ultimately, if that doesn't work, then physical violence. How often does that happen in marriages where I've seen over and over again where you get frustrated and so you use verbal violence to try to get your way. And if that doesn't work, physical pushing and hitting. And even if you only do it once in a 30-year marriage, you've created an atmosphere, an environment of fear that it might happen again. Some of you have lived in those kinds of marriages. And let me just say, if you're living in fear today, I encourage you to get help. Because your marriage is centered on the way of the world, not the way of the kingdom of God. And if you're living in that kind of marriage, get help. Or that kind of relationship. I think about us with ISIS, you know. And, and, and I'm not saying nations can do it a whole lot different. But just think about the way it functions. It's, hey, ISIS doesn't respond to negotiating, so what do we do? We just throw more bombs at them. Try to intimidate. When that doesn't work, we turn to bombs and drones and armies. That's just the way the world works, brothers and sisters. That's the tactic of the kingdom of this world, and it has never changed, and it never will. You can't clean up the world. You can't use it for your own purposes, godly purposes, because it's not what God's called us to. Why? Its values and tactics are different from the kingdom of God. So what are the tactics and values we see Jesus exhibiting for us as a model for us if we're not to use intimidation and violence? What do we see Jesus using? Well, the values of the kingdom, of course, you see it lived out here. Number one are love. Putting others above yourself. Jesus here is taking on the sins of the whole world and the reviling and the mocking of the whole world right here. He's taking it on. Why? Because of love. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Because Jesus loves the Father and he's responding to the Father. Jesus didn't want to be here. You remember Gethsemane? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this. But love kept him there and love kept him on the cross. Another value of the world I think we see here, I mean of the kingdom of God that we see here is truth. That Jesus is willing to stand up for the truth. Yes, I'm the son of God. He's simply living out the truth of who he is. He's being true to who he is and he's revealing the true nature of God by how he is responding. And a third value of the kingdom we see here is humility. Remember Philippians chapter 2, that humility of Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, we're to be like him. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He didn't want to hang on to that. But he emptied himself 
of his rights as the very creator of the universe, the God of the universe, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And those words, form of a bondservant, they mean that he took on, he made visible the invisible, that he already was a bondservant, that the very heart of God is to be a servant. It always is to love and to be a servant. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. So when it says he took on the form of a bondservant, it means he made visible what was invisible. He showed us the very heart of God being a bondservant, being made in the likeness of sinful man and being made in the very form of a man. He humbled himself by coming obedient to the, to the very point of death, death on a cross. That's the heart of God revealed by Jesus, humility. He's showing us that in the kingdom of God, it's not about power. It's not about dominating an unjust, evil world. It's not about status and finding a position and making sure Christians are in the top positions. Uh, Some people are called. I'm not saying there isn't a calling, but that's not how we get things done in the kingdom of God by using power and status. Those are the things of the world. But the kingdom of God accomplishes things through humility, servanthood, becoming a bondservant. So the things God values are love, truth, and humility, along with others. I'm going to highlight just those three. So how do we accomplish then? What what are our tactics? Number one, declaring the truth. Jesus simply declares the truth. Yes, I'm the Son of God. And it's interesting in this passage, all this mocking that goes on, Jesus is silent through all that, but it's the people themselves in their mocking who are speaking truth about Jesus. Oh, you're the king of the Jews, huh? (laughs) Oh, the temple be turned down and in three days raised again? Yep. They're mocking him, and yet what they're saying is the truth. Interesting how the authorities are the ones who proclaim Jesus king here. How does the kingdom of God expand through declaring the truth? And secondly, through self-denial. The world lives by self-preservation, right? Kingdom of God expands through self-denial by being willing to set aside my own interests for the interests of others. Now, you know this in your own marriage, right? If, if you're trying to live out a, a, a Christian marriage, if you do like the world encourages you to do and which your own flesh will encourage you to do, which is, Okay, I got to fight for my rights here. I got to make sure it's 50-50. I got to make sure I'm taken care of here. I got to preserve self. Because if I don't take care of myself, no one else will. See, when we take on that attitude, how does that work in marriage? Really badly. <laughs> because you end up fighting, you end up digging in, you end up trying to protect your own turf. Whether it's in a marriage or a friendship or whatever, when we demand equal rights, when we demand 50-50, when we fight for what's fair for me, then you're living for the kingdom of the world, and it doesn't work. But when I choose to let go of my rights and say, I'll give 100%, and whatever comes back to me, praise God, it's a gift. And I'm willing to die to myself, deny my own rights, For the sake of my spouse, because I'm called to be like Jesus, who sacrificed his very life. And that's what marriage is about. And I'm going to do that. When we choose to do that, then the kingdom of God is expanded and God is at work and it frees up the spirit of God to work in and through us. 
and we advance the kingdom of God. How does the kingdom get expanded? Through truth, through self-denial, but to even take it deeper, ultimately through cross-bearing, through going to the cross. Because ultimately, Jesus dies. He shows us that dying to self, dying to this world, is the best way to advance the kingdom of God. In verse 21, it's really interesting here. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Simon probably is just walking by. He's probably there for Passover. He came from northern Africa, Cyrene. He may have been black. We don't know. But there he is. He's walking by, probably just on his way to buy something for the next meal or going to the market. And and they grab him and make him bear Jesus's cross. As Jesus has been so beaten and tortured, he can't carry it alone. And so Simon nestles up next to our Lord and helps carry his cross. And as he walks with Jesus, we don't know what happened to him specifically. But Mark says something very interesting. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark mentions them. Why? Because the early church who was reading his gospel would know who they are. These were obviously significant people in the early church. Alexander and Rufus. Now, we don't know it's exactly the same one, but at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, as Paul is talking to, he's giving all these greetings in verse 13 of Romans 16. He says this, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now, we don't know it's the same Rufus, but if it is, this man who was probably just a Jew who was there, who was forced to carry Jesus' cross, became a cross-bearer with Jesus, something happened. Something happened to him and his family. And at least these two sons, Alexander and Rufus, came to Christ. And if it's the same, then his wife as well, Simon's wife, who became like a mother to Paul. To me, this is, this is a dramatic picture for us that when we choose to be... He didn't even choose to be a cross-bearer, right? <laughs> we have to choose. We choose to walk with Jesus and nestle up next to him and carry his cross with him and die to ourselves set aside our interests and say, you know what, I'm going to stop looking for life in this world. I'm going to look for life in the next, and therefore I'm going to give my life away here. I'm going to die to self. I'm going to serve your kingdom. I'm going to live for your kingdom, not mine. And when we choose to do that on a daily basis in the lives that we live together with others, we never know the impact on the next generation of what God can do when we choose to be a cross-bearer. You see, cross-bearing is how the kingdom gets expanded. It pictures for us that when we're willing to take up the cross of Christ, die to self and follow Jesus, the kingdom is advanced. I heard a speaker from Egypt talking about why Egypt is the only one of the nations. Now, they're having problems now, I get this, but they're the only ones of all the Arab Spring nations that walked through it, and actually they were stable and they continued to have peace, and it was a peaceful, good transition. And the speaker was saying that the reason that happened is because 
when the Islamic Brotherhood decided they wanted to stir up a war so that there would be utter chaos so they could gain control and take power in the nation of Egypt. And so within two days, they went and burned over 80 churches to make the Coptic Christians mad so that there would be this huge battle. And the leader of the Muslims a couple months later said, the only reason we've been able to make this transition, unlike any of the, of the other Arab nations, is one reason alone. Because the Christians did not retaliate. Because the Christians chose self-denial. Because the Christians chose to be cross-bearers. And it had a huge impact on that entire nation, including the Muslims there. And the kingdom of God was expanded. Brothers and sisters, this is the culmination of the book of Mark right here in these next, this week and next week. And it shows the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The challenge for us is this. Which kingdom are we part of? What are we living in? What are we living by the values of? Which kingdom would the world say we're part of? See, the church always gets in trouble when we use the tactics of the world, right? And we, and we vie for power and status and control and self-preservation. What, is, what happens? They just look at us and dismiss us because we're judgmental and we're just like the world. But when the church chooses to be like Jesus is showing us to be one who does not grasp for position and power and demand our rights, but dies to ourselves, set aside our rights, be willing to go to the cross in our families, in our relationships, in our communities, and serve. The kingdom of God is expanded, and we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus in love and truth and self-denial and dying to self. Because in the end, the kingdom of God will win. Jesus will exert his power. But in the meantime, he's called us to live and walk in his footsteps. Here's what's coming. Here's where our hope is. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and you began to reign. He will win in the end, but in the meantime, he has called us to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. So the question for every one of us today is, which kingdom are we most part of? Let's pray. Lord, what a, a contrast between the ways of the world and, and how you chose to show us the kingdom of God gets expanded. Lord, this is scary for us to die to ourselves, to bear your cross with you. But thank you for the vision of how your kingdom does get expanded. And may we be people who walk in your steps so the world might see that there is an alternative kingdom. There is a Lord Jesus who is on the throne. And may we follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.